So a little earlier, when I was praying for you guys as mothers, I've done that for many years, love doing that. This one was a little different. Some of you are aware, uh, my mom went to heaven on January the 2nd, so this is my first Mother's Day without having a text that I can send her. Uh, I'm so grateful for the hope of the gospel that enables, that enables her to know Jesus in a way that she just took some, some whiffs of while she was on this planet, and now it's all-out celebration. I am so grateful for that. At the same time, on my end, there's an ache there. I, I actually found in my drawer a, a Mother's Day card. You know, over the years, I'd, I'd buy a Mother's Day card, and then you find one that you like better a week or two later. And I don't always do that. There's sometimes it's the night before. Okay, I, I get that. But I found this one. And I'm thinking, I, I don't have anywhere to send it now. I, mean, I could write all this stuff, and in fact, I might later today, right? But there's, there's, there's no place to send it. I, maybe even questions over the years. Mom was a great sounding board, and some of the smaller questions, even the bigger questions. But I want to translate that from an earthly parent to something that I'm so grateful for about my walk with God. It has to do with the big questions. What's this life all about? What is ultimate reality? What is significance? What, what is meaning? Do we have meaning? Do we have significance on this planet? And who am I? Am I just a lucky blob of protoplasm coming together through an evolutionary accident? Or is there intentionality in my existence? How do I navigate through, not, not a Sunday church, but Mondays and the ups and downs and ebbs and flows? Let's just say you and I were to come up with a bunch of those kind of questions and put them together. Where do we send them? A lot of people feel like we don't know where to send them. I heard a song this week by Emmy Lou Harris, the country singer. It's called The Pearl. This is one of her lyrics. She says, we're aging soldiers in an ancient war, seeking out some half-remembered shore. We drink our fill and still we thirst for more. Asking if there's no heaven, what is this hunger for? If there's no God, then why am I in this place. Well, why every now and then? Now, it's rare. We've, we, we're doing our jobs and our relationships and taking out the trash and going on vacations. But in those rare moments, when we have those moments of silence, where do we take those questions? A couple of thousand years ago, there's a guy named John. People refer to him as the Apostle John. John, I'm not sure what he thought about that. He was a fisherman. He and his brother James, sons of Zebedee, on the shores of the Sea of Galilee, Jesus came along, summoned them to be a disciple. He walked with Jesus for three years, was transformed, not by Jesus' religiosity or even his ideology, but by Jesus' restorative agenda of, of, of bringing life. And we're going to be talking about that a little bit. 
As an old man, John wrote his gospel. He was the only one of the disciples who hadn't been martyred. He was persecuted, but he lived to be an old man. And he's wanting to, under the inspiration of the Spirit, introduce Jesus. And so that question, where do I take this letter? Who do I address it to with some of these big life questions? Here's what John would have said in John chapter 1, verse 1. This is how he begins his gospel. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And through him, all things were made. So he's referring to Jesus here. He identifies him later in the text. We went through this a few weeks ago. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. And in him, so here we go. Where do I take the letter? John would say, in him was life. And that life was the light of all mankind. You want light for those questions? You find it in Jesus because in him was life. Now that word life John means far more than heart beating, lung breathing, because Jesus meant far more than that. In John's gospel, his three epistles, in Revelation, he brings up the, what we translate in English as life about 71 times, but only about 15 of them are the heart beating, lung breathing kind of life. The rest is this life of the gospel, the inference, and you see how Jesus taught and how the disciples received that teaching, and then they taught in the epistles that we are all born dead. Jesus' agenda on this planet is a restorative, life-giving agenda where our hearts are beating, our lungs are breathing, but we're muted, we're, we're capable, we're, we're, we're image bearers, capable of great beauty and great creativity, and the, by the way, an even great organization. I was just thinking about this this morning on I-4. Is that an unbelievable project or not? I, I'm so looking forward to my grandkids being able to enjoy I-4. <laughs> But you, seeing it, all of the intricacies, there's imageness in that. God created the universe. He made us as His image bearers. We're, we're capable of relationships. We're capable of love. But it's muted because we're dead. We're dead because of our rebelliousness, saying, God, I don't need you to be a fulfilled human being. I can figure it out on my own. And Jesus comes along in John chapter 10, verse 10, and he says, the thief comes to steal, kill, and destroy. I've come that you might have life and have it to the full. It's not positive mental attitude. It's not, hey, self-improvement. He says, I want to restore you to what you were intended for, which is why we're calling this series going through John's gospel, Awaken. The gospel is a summons to not be religious, but to be alive. Our vision, based on that, based on what what Jesus was saying in John 10.10, our vision is engaging people to be fully alive in Jesus. And so as we're taking a journey through this gospel, it's understanding what that life of the gospel means. Probably the clearest description that Jesus gave is in John 17, verse 3. The night before he's crucified, he prayed. He said, now this is eternal life. We think eternal life is heaven. No, eternal life will be experienced in heaven, but eternal life is a qualitative existence, not just quantitative forever, but qualitative existence that we were made for. Eternal life is knowing you, the only true God, Jesus Christ, whom you've sent. So there's a relationship agenda. Bottom line, when he brings us to life, he He invites us into relationship that infuses our recreation and our grieving and our relationships and our vocation and our Tuesdays and our Fridays. It transforms us, that that mute, that 
kind of covering that cloaks us, that of deadness, is taken away, and we can begin, not perfectly, we're still in a fallen body in a fallen world, but we can begin to experience our humanity to the glory of God as we were originally intended for. The problem is we take a detour as human beings. Throughout the course of humanity and even Christianity, religiosity has taken precedence over relationship. Last week, we looked at Jesus clearing the temple out in anger, going after the religious leaders. Talked about how we approach religiosity as a gumball machine, a vending machine, meaning we put our little good deeds in here, we go to church or we do a little of this. We all have our things, religious things we do, and we expect that out of them, we get the flavor gumball that we want. God, I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine. Jesus says, let me tell you what eternal life is. It's being at the table with me. It's relating with me. I stand at the door and knock, uh, Revelation 3 says. Whoever answers, I'll come in and eat with them. In the Middle Eastern context, those meals were an act of intimacy and relationship. The temple... In Jesus' day was that embodiment of how people connected in this relationship with God that is missing. And what they had done, it's what we all do, is they turned the temple, instead of a place of relating, being able to relate with God, they turned it into a place of transaction and religiosity. And we looked at the difference between practicing religiosity and pursuing a relationship last week. And it changes the way when I, I view church. It changes the way that I view Christianity and others. We're practicing religiosity, it's an external thing. Church is consumer. It's all about me and my preferences. I, I, I kind of can become callous towards other people and have a low view of God because I treat him just as a genie. Walking in Him in a relationship, there's a, a sense of an internal transformation in which I've become part of a called group of people, called to be at this table. I care for others because Jesus did. I have a high view of Him, so it's not based on works. Religiosity is a thing that says, you know, I'll do all these things and then God in return will do something. So what happens in my walk with God is due to my works. High view of God says, there's no way I can bridge the gap between God and me by my works. My religious works are going to be inadequate. It's all about grace. Him giving me not what I deserve, but what I need and giving it to me freely because of what He did on the cross. So after Jesus cleared the temple, that made quite a stir. One of the premier religious leaders, there's a group called the Sanhedrin and a teacher, there's a guy named Nicodemus. He comes to Jesus at night. Now, John emphasizes at night because this was a career breaker. If Nicodemus gets caught with this, because Jesus was always, his entire ministry, going after the religiosity crowd. Those who are turning a relationship with God into a transaction of religiosity in which we can take great pride in our religiosity. And of course, God likes us because look at how wonderful we are and how religious we are and all the things that we do. Jesus was coming at them over and over. But Nicodemus senses something in John chapter 3. If you want to read along in your Bibles, if you don't have a Bible, pick one up as our 
another gift outside at the welcome desk afterwards. He says, now there was a Pharisee, a man named Nicodemus, who was a member of the Jewish ruling council, and he came to Jesus at night and he said, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who's come from God. That's a, that's a huge step right there that he was acknowledging that. And then he says, for no one could perform the signs you're doing if God were not with him. He immediately was distinguishing himself from a lot of the religious leaders who were trying to explain away Jesus' impact and the power they were sensing. Well, Jesus cuts to the, the, the chase with him. He says, very truly, I tell you, no one can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. Unless they are what? Now, that's a phrase that a lot of people misunderstand. It, it's derided some. It's caricatured. Uh, hey, have you been born again? To the, point, to the degree that sometimes people don't want to use that phrase. It's a phrase from Jesus. So the most significant question I can ask you as a human being is, is have you been born again? Have you been born again? Now, a lot of us religiousize that. I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is now. And a lot of people say, hey, no thank you. Because we think it means, hey, have you taken a, a swan dive into religiosity? And you know, some of you, you really don't want to deal with church a lot because you smell there's something really hokey and wrong about this. So you might even be over here thinking, I'm just going to do away with the whole thing. And that's the heartbreak of religiosity is because it acts almost like a vaccine to keep us from the real thing. And people that see it for what it is and expose it head the other direction. I am praying that today you're realizing this summons to Jesus is not this, but this. It's not transaction, it's intimacy and relationship. But to get to this table is to be born again. See, we're all dead in our trespasses and sins. The most unique thing about Jesus, he was the first fully alive human being to walk on the face of this planet since Adam and Eve before the fall. He was modeling what we're supposed to be. But he took our rebelliousness penalty, the penalty that we owe God for, the death sentence that we're living in every day if we're not followers of Jesus. Yes, experiencing all those things, love, creativity, and uh, beauty, and all of that, but it's muted. We're, we're, we're carrying that death sentence, and it'll, be, it'll be, be propelled for eternity. Jesus is the infinite God-man, took that penalty upon himself, died on the cross, and said, you want to let me pay that penalty for you? Trust me, and, and your death sentence is fulfilled, and you can come alive. And so throughout Scripture, an image is that Jesus is the firstborn from among the dead. Paul talks about it in Romans and Colossians. Hebrews refers to us as the church of the firstborn. So when Jesus rose again from the dead, He was in essence the firstborn, as the Scriptures say, of the new creation. God's agenda on this planet is not to religiousize it. His agenda in your life is not to make you religious. His agenda is to make us alive. He's renewing the cosmos. And so this notion of being born again is referred to over and over in terms of him being the firstborn of this new humanity. And the uniqueness of this group is not us coming together to do a religious ritual, but to celebrate that we're part of the church of the firstborn. We have followed him in his death on our behalf and have risen again into a new life. He keeps going. How can he sometime, How can someone, Nicodemus says, be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born? And Jesus answered, 
Very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the Spirit. Now, this notion of the kingdom, the kingdom of God is not a place. It's the realm of God's rule. The kingdom of God exists in this auditorium, let's say that. Imagine each seat as one place. The kingdom of God is in some seats, but not others, depending on the person who is sitting in that seat. You. When I enter the kingdom of God, I'm entering into the rule of God. It's not oppressive. It's a life-giving rule that restores me the original purpose that I'm made for. Before the fall, before the rebellion, the entire earth was the kingdom of God, and the kingdom of God was this world. When the rebellion happened, there were pockets of disobedience, and therefore God's rule was not welcomed. And so what Jesus is doing is bringing back in the kingdom, bringing back in God's rule to the point that in Revelation we're told in the new heaven, the new earth, and you sing this every Christmas, I do too, where they're quoting scripture in Handel's Messiah, the kingdom of this world has once again become the kingdom of our God. It will once again be the same. Following so far? You say, no, we got to start over. You're going to miss your reservation for Mother's Day. Following so far? What Jesus is saying is, I've come to restore the kingdom. Nobody can see the kingdom without being born again. Nobody can enter the kingdom without being born again. How can somebody be born when they're old? Nicodemus asked. Surely they cannot enter a second time into their mother's womb to be born. And Jesus answered, very truly, I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the spirit gives birth to spirit. Verse seven, you should not be surprised at my saying, you must be born again. The wind blows wherever it pleases. You hear its sound, but you cannot tell where it comes from or where it's going. So it is with everyone born of the spirit. How can this be? Nicodemus asked. You're Israel's teacher, Jesus said, and do you not understand these things? Very truly, I tell you, we speak of what we know and we testify to what we've seen, but still you people do not accept our testimony. I've spoken to you of earthly things and you do not believe. How then will you believe if I speak of heavenly things? No one has ever gone into heaven except the one who came from heaven, the Son of Man. Son of Man, as Jesus referenced to himself, comes from uh, the prophets, particularly Daniel. Right here, Jesus is pointing to himself as the hope, as the entry point into the kingdom, as the one who enables a new birth. And then he solidifies with his next statement. Just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be lifted up, that everyone who believes may have eternal life in him. The snake in the wilderness was something that happened. The children of Israel were wandering in the wilderness. Snakes were by, they were getting snake bit. And Moses lifted up a, a, a snake on a, pole, on a pole. People would look at that, and that was to remind them that God could heal them, God could protect them. It was, a, it was an act of, of being healed and being protected. And Jesus is saying, whenever you see Jesus referring to being lifted up, it's referring to his death on the cross. Somebody being crucified, would, they would lay them down on a cross, nail them to the cross, and then lift it up. Jesus is referring to a sacrifice that was coming. Obviously, Nicodemus couldn't put all that together. But Jesus is saying, I am the way to this new life. I am the means by which you can be born again. And the way to God, the way to a restored humanity, the way to have these questions in that envelope answered is not learning some religiosity, little formulas, 
but entering into a relationship of being born again. What's it look like? It looks like a number of things. Several things come out in this text. Remember the big questions? Kind of, uh, you know, what's this life all about? What's the meaning of life? Who am I? How do I navigate this? He's addressing that. He says, when you're born again, you get, a, you get new sight. He says, nobody can see the kingdom of God unless they're born again. It's a perspective. In Peru, uh, there's a, about a 20-mile area where ancient tribes dug trenches of like six inches to a foot, maybe the same width. And the way the vegetation and the soil is, uh, you're walking along and it just looks like random lines. You get up to high mountaintops, and, and then this was sometime before the time of Christ, sometime time between 500 BC and 500 AD, they're, they're guesstimating is when it was done. 20 square miles, these lines, you see it from, the, from mountaintops around or the air, it's artwork. We go through our lives and we see this little line and that little line, and Jesus said, Come to me, be born again, and you gain sight. You gain a perspective that you didn't have before. You start to understand. All the answers? No. Religious people sometimes act like they've got all the answers. Over here, I've got perspective. And there's some, I've got some unanswered questions, but I've got a relationship that I can keep interacting. And I understand that I'm not going to get all the answers till the new heaven, the new earth. But I have an insight as to the purpose of my life, the purpose of your life, what we're about. And it's a kingdom thing in which I want to live my life and do my relationships underneath his rule in his kingdom as somebody who's been brought to life. So I've got, I've got new, a new sight, that question of what is life all about. There's no more cogent answer than the one that Jesus brought. Status-wise, who am I? Being born again brings a new status. I'm somebody who's now been brought back from the dead. I become part of a new community. Verse 4 and 5, look at verse 5. He says, very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they're born of water and of the Spirit. So entering the kingdom of God is entering a new status. Am I a king's kid or not? Am I living under his rule, his leadership? Ezekiel chapter 36 is some of the text that Jesus is alluding to here. Verse 24, he says, For I will take you out of the nations. I will gather you from all the countries and bring you back into your own land. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you'll be clean. I will cleanse you from all your impurities and from all your idols, and I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit in you. I'll remove from you your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh, and I will put my spirit in you and move you to follow my decrees and be careful to keep my laws. I'm going to translate you, transfer you from one status to another, and here's what your new status is. We looked at it a few weeks ago in, in, in John chapter 1, verse 12. Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of natural descent nor of human decision or husband's will, but born of God. Right here, I'm a religious person that's doing the right things and God better pay attention because I'm rubbing the genie bottle and doing all this stuff. Over here, I'm a king's kid. He says, man, I want to adopt you. I... 
read about something this week that I pay particular interest in because of what I'm dealing with right now. I've got a, a ear thing going on. My, my right ear canal is totally closed, so I can't hear out of my right ear right now. It's an infection, and uh, uh, your pastor is on drugs, and it's a great thing. Um, but I, this next week, I'll have a procedure. And, but I, 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 I empathize with those of you who have hearing issues because it, it, it messes with you. And I, I, I can't fully hear it. I can only imagine if this ear were closed as well. And it's what Jesus is saying is when you're born again, you've, you've entered a new status. What I read this week, that the reason I'm bringing that up is a guy named Steve Henning. He was 57 years old, had been deaf since birth had an implant, new technology into his ear, it took six weeks for things to get settled, and then they activated it, and so he could hear immediately the first words he heard were his wife saying, I love you. The first words that I finally hear when I'm born again is, Matt, I love you. It's amazing the first words you hear religiously, words of condemnation, words of, of judgment, words of anger. There's, an, there's a status of, of being a king's kid. There's new strength that comes from being born again, too. That's the third. It's not just new sight, not just new status, but Jesus talking about new strength. He mentions the Spirit. The Holy Spirit takes up residence in me the moment I enter into this relationship. And I gain a strength to live out my life, to trust the Spirit of Christ within me, to give me strength to do my life to the glory of God. And that new strength and new status and new sight totals up to be new life. He says all of this brings up, let's bring that up on the screen, do the little equation there. You know what new life in Jesus looks like? Understanding what this life is all about, understanding who I am, understand that He will give me enough strength to make it through the next day because of His Spirit who abides and lives within me. Paul says in Romans chapter 6, we were therefore buried with Him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. Doing the same relationship, same job, same living in the same address, maybe some of the same hobbies, et cetera, et cetera. But there's a newness. Jesus says in John 5, 24, I tell you the truth, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be condemned. He has crossed over at that moment from death to life. So right here, I'm no longer dead, I'm alive. It is not a matter of Jesus saying, hey, all religious people come over here. That was his anger at the temple of turning religiosity into a transaction with God. No, it's meant to be a relationship. What I, in the garden we were created for relationship. He says, come here and on a daily basis relate with me. You guys know about the ABCs of being fully alive? Okay. We've talked about them here. You can go to northernchurch.net slash fully alive, but 10 characteristics or more. What's it look like, this new life in Christ? A, I live with a sense of awe that otherwise would be impossible. All of life is worship. Brokenness is something I embrace underneath his enoughness. 
And I begin to be shaped, and he takes brokennesses and uses it for his purposes. I, I magnify God through my creativity, created in his image. I, I live with a sense of depth and insight, getting into the scriptures and looking behind events into the why of them. And I engage other people with the gospel, with love, with compassion, with justice. It's not just about me, and I do it in community, in fellowship with other followers of Jesus. This table is more than just two seats at it. I'm generous with my time, my abilities, my finances. I live with heart and passion. I walk in intimacy. And I realize each day is significant because it's a part of a journey. But it all begins, first time, with me being born again, taking a seat at this table. What does that look like? How do you do that? I'm going to give you an opportunity in just a few minutes, if you haven't already, to be born again to trust Jesus. When I ask some folks, some friends to come out, we're going to have a little bit of a conversation though, because with everybody, it's a little bit different. What does it look like for a person to trust Christ? What's it look like for a person to be born again? Uh, you guys know Michelle and Rob, you've seen up here. Uh, these guys, you've, you've You've heard them talk a little bit about their journey, especially Michelle. But uh, you, you, you might not have heard Naj talk. You've seen her sing. And then this is Chris, this guy right here. You've never heard him sing. And, th and there's, there's a reason for that. Um, he's really been excited this weekend to have a microphone, uh, thinking that he can try out and do an audition. But the guys back in the back, they are ready. They've got that on-off button set. All right, so uh, thanks for being up here. And this is, uh, I'm going to try to come up with some questions that will really stump you guys, difficult theological questions. Just kidding. Here's some men and women that are grappling. We're family here. Some are saying, this is making sense. It has been. I've been, it's not my first time here. I've been processing this, but I don't think I've ever move from there to here. I don't know, I think, I don't know that I've ever trusted Christ, been born again. What does that look like? How does that happen? A little different. There are obviously commonalities for all of us, but Michelle, you, since you're the furthest away and can't hit me, I'm going to start with you. How'd you come to Christ? Well, I grew up my whole life in a Christian family. I come from a long line of uh, Pentecostal ministers it's in my DNA, and I literally grew up on the, the church pew. I probably accepted Christ around the age of five, but it's just I can't ever remember not um, knowing the Lord. But in the culture that I grew up in, it was a, more of a culture of fear. I was fearful that I was um, one sin away from not going to heaven. It's very much what Matt was talking about, of living in a type of re religiosity where I, the focus was obedience and even perfection. And that's what... Like a, a legalistic obedience. Exactly, legalistic, yeah, legalistic. Yeah. And, you know, it, it led me to live my life in fear, and it also led me to, leave, to lead my life in a way where I really thought that God owed me something, that I deserved good things to happen to me. I, I deserved good fruity gumballs. I deserved the best ones because I tried to be the very best I could be. And when I got into my 20s, 
I had some, just my life was turned upside down. And I was brought to my knees and I had a real epiphany that God, finally realized that God loved me just the way I was. It was the first time, it was probably about 25, that I experienced grace and that, that there was redemption and that it was for me and there was nothing I could do to earn it. And I had never experienced that before. So kind of a two-part. I was, grew up in it, but my heart really grasped it and understood it, and I could finally live in freedom at that point. I love that. And this table is a place of freedom. That thing over there is a place of fear. I've not done enough. I've not put enough quarters in. And um, I, I love that. And, the, and God orchestrated two people to get together. I don't know that I said a minute ago, these two were married. And it's just an amazing story. Rob, yours is identical to hers, right? <laughs> yes, Matt, uh, it is. <laughs> no, mine couldn't be further away. I grew up uh, in an Episcopal church setting. I... Uh, along the lines of religiosity, I, I did everything I could to be religious enough. I was an acolyte. Um, I um, even went so far as to go up to the University of the South and think about actually becoming a minister. But as most I of you... I had no idea that. You haven't said that in any of the other I know. Services. But as, as you all know, that, that didn't happen. Uh, I became a musician instead, so how did that work? I don't know. But, but I, Michelle told me something as we were going to sit out, and, and she said that I should share this, and so I will. And, and she's a little bit controlling. Hey, it's Mother's Day. It's Mother's Day, so it do is. what she says. Um, you know, a lot of my journey um, as a Christian and in the faith, it's been up and down. And, and so I really want to talk just for a brief second to anyone who is thinking about their own salvation and the fact that they're not sure if they have it, but maybe they want it. And you're not sure what's going to happen if you accept it. It's like you were saying, you dive into this thing and you really don't know what to expect, but there's a lot of things to be maybe a little bit apprehensive about. For me, my, my overarching issue in life has been chronic depression. I've had it since I was four years old. And when I came to faith, I came hoping that that, that would be the cure because I had become an alcoholic in the process, trying to find a way to medicate myself out of this pain. And when I came to Christ, it, nothing magical happened. It wasn't an instant cure. It wasn't instant anything. But what it was, was the beginning of a relationship, the beginning of a friendship. And who doesn't want a friend, especially a friend like Christ? Who would not want that in their life? Because he'll talk to you and you can talk to him. And there's nothing better than communication to find your path. And through that and through Michelle and a lot of love and a lot of pain. I've really found my path. I still, I still modulate and waver and do all the other things that Christians do, but I have the relationship. Oh, I love that. Have the relationship. That's awesome. That's awesome. Mm -hmm. Nice. Mm. 
Yes. Okay. So, um, so I basically, like, I grew up at Northland. Not really, but, like, yes. I started coming here in, like, second grade. You know, did all that. Did grade school. Uh, found myself at Lug Rocks in seventh grade. Which, like, by the way, shout out to my friends at Lug Rocks Student Ministry sitting over there. Bring your friends to Lug Rocks. Anyways. Um, and when I was in about eighth grade, I, uh, I found, like, a really good group of girls that, like, loved to death. And they were, like, my actual family outside of my, like, you know, family. And so when I was in eighth grade, we did our baptism service for the first time. And I, like, decided that night to get baptized. So I was like, wow, like, you know, this is, like, the first time that I've ever, like, felt like God amongst, like, a, a community. And it, it was great. And I was like, I, I have no, like, I don't know, regrets, restrictions, whatever, to not do it. And then so I did it. And, you know, like, with that, like, going off what, like, Pastor Matt said about, like, strength, like, I it gave me a strength that I didn't know I was going to need because, like, right after that, my parents split going into my ninth grade year. And, you know, that, well, no, that's, like, a beast within itself because, you know, your home life just changed. And then I went into high school and, you know, didn't know anybody. And so, like, there was, like, a sense of, like, loneliness. But, like, the strength that I had, like, got me through it. And, um, you know, I just kept going to, to, like, low rocks, though. Sometimes it might have felt like I was on, like, the outside looking in. But uh, it was just, like, like, the fact that, like, I, like, I know, like, I knew that, like, my heart of hearts, like, I have a God, a God that, like, loves me, a God that cares about me, a God that will see me through it, no matter, like, how rough things may seem. And here I am now, you know, like, proudly talking about student ministries and all that stuff and God and, um, and, uh, and like, I'm, I'm a senior now. I made it to the end and I'm happy and I'm proud and I... I, I love what God can do and what he did, and huh. yeah. Love that, thank you, Nodge. <laughs> so there's a, a pattern already that you see. Every, uh, brokenness is part of all of our journeys, and God can use that either to harden us and move us even further away or, or, or draw them to him. Same is true in your journey. Yeah. Um, I want to sing my story, since you guys don't think Perfect. I can sing. Yeah. 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 So you want to invite us all into a, <laughs> Brokenness right yes, now, is yeah. that right? Uh, okay. Oh, I, a one, uh, a two. Oh, no, definitely. It's pressure. I, um, I was born into a family that was churchgoers. So um, I went to church every single week um, religiously. Um, and so I really, um, you know, when you talk about religiosity, like I grasp that. And, um, and then early on in elementary school, um, my dad left, um, and, and so I was left fatherless um, with a single mom and a sister, and, um, but we continued the religiosity thing, just going to church every week, and, um, and, uh, and then um, in middle school, God did something miraculous. Um, the, my dad re- had remarried, um, and my stepmother, who um, honestly was a big part of the brokenness of our family, um, she and my dad went and saw Billy Graham, um, heard about this message that you've shared this morning. And I don't think Billy Graham's ever talked without, he ever talked without saying born again, right? That's right. Yeah. And, uh, and so they, they were born again. And, um, and so at that point, I was going over there every other weekend, and, um, and 
as God would have it, he used my stepmother to share the gospel with me. Um, and so I'd had, growing up, I had all the, all the knowledge about Jesus, but I didn't know Jesus. I didn't have an a intimate relationship with him. And so she um, shared with me that I was, I was broken, that, I was, um, that there was a separation between me and God because of my sin, and that there was nothing I could do about it. As much as I wanted to try to, the religiosity piece, that only Jesus could save me. And and that life was about having a relationship with him. And so um, she asked me, is that something you want to do? And I said, yes. And so um, we prayed and I asked Jesus into my heart. And I can, it's, I know it sounds a little hokey, but I could feel it. Like in my soul, I felt something different. And when you were talking up here earlier about, you know, the Holy Spirit taking residence in, in your life and in your heart, like I felt that. And um, so that's all good. But the b- biggest part of my story is after, you know, how is Jesus just how he's just transformed my life, um, everything from my, my marriage to my, my, the way I raise my kids, um, my relationships with everybody. And um, I'm not perfect. We still go through hard, t- hard times. Um, my family went through a, some really serious grief the last, um, in the last five years. And um, even in that, like I could still experience life to the full. Um, and I, I actually prayed that when we were going through the grief that Jesus, I want to dive into this grief and experience it the way that you want me to experience it. And, um, and so, yeah, it's a journey and it's been awesome. So. As I hear, yeah, thank you, buddy. It is so fun to hear people's stories. And when I say fun, I don't mean entertaining fun. It is a deep privilege. And I want to thank you guys. It's not easy to sit up in front of all these people and to talk about that. Thank you. Would you thank them one more time for sharing your story? Thank you, guys.